Unlock the past and safeguard your memories with ScanMyPhotos.com. Here's our special promo code, GoDigital, to get a whopping up to 50% off your photo scanning order. Don't let your cherished moments fade away. Digitize them now with precision and care. Whether it's old slides, photos, or films, bring them into the digital age and relive those precious memories. This is an affiliate promotion, meaning we may earn a commission if you take advantage of this fantastic deal. Act fast, preserve your history, and save big with Go Digital at ScanMyPhotos.com. I'm Maureen Taylor, the photo detective. I really love family photographs, all of them, from the mystery images you find in shoeboxes and albums to the pictures you snap with your digital devices. No mystery is too small. A simple question about an image can lead to new stories of your ancestors. This means you can count on me to help you identify the people in them, offer solutions for preserving and organizing them, and yes, even guide you in the various ways to gather and share picture stories with your relatives. Welcome to The Photo Detective, where we cover historical image analysis, genealogy, and how to work with your family photo collection. Did you ever wonder how your ancestors learned how to take good pictures? It's likely they read Kodak's Guide for Amateur Photographers, How to Make Good Pictures, published from 1912 to 1995. New cameras and new technology influenced how we took photographs and what they photographed. My guests studied those popular guides to photography to compile a new type of photo history, one that focuses on average folks and their cameras. Arranged topically within time frames, you'll learn that photographing your TV was a thing and that folks needed advice about the same things we might struggle with today, from capturing good stills of wildlife to taking pictures at night. It's a new way of looking at the pictures we took. But no history of photography would be complete unless it covers the beginnings of it all, starting with the daguerreotype. This volume now sits on my personal reference shelf to be browsed and studied whenever I have a minute. Kim Beale is an art historian who teaches at Stanford University. Her writing on art and culture has appeared in The Atlantic, Art Forum, Art in America, Literary Hub, and Photograph Magazine, among other publications. Her book, Good Pictures, A History of Popular Photography, was published in June 2020 by Stanford University Press. And believe me, it's a highlight of 2020. You can find her on Instagram at K-I-M.B-E-I-L. My guest today is Kim Beal, and she has written a brand new history of photography that is so different from all the other ones that are out there that it's startling and refreshing in its new take on an, on an old subject. Kim, thank you so much for being on The Photo Detective. Thanks so much for having me. I love Good Pictures, which is your book, History of Popular Photography. I mean, how do you come to this? I mean, this is a a game changer as far as I'm concerned. It's a different type of history. Yeah, it is. 
It's it's a history told through how-to books and how-to books are aimed at mostly amateur photographers, people who are learning how to improve their technique. And so I take popular as a broad definition. It's not just vernacular photographs. It's not just snapshot photographs, but it's pictures that were widely seen in the time of their making. And so they were also pictures that were widely imitated. And how-to books are one of the places where you can see what kinds of pictures were popular, what people were supposed to be doing with their cameras. And also, you can see how trends change over the years. So it is, it is a different perspective on photography. How did you come up with this idea? I had identified a few of these trends in other research. So one of them is motion blur, which is creating a blurred background by panning the camera along with a moving subject. Um, so the subject appears still and the background blurs. And that is an overturning of previous rules about photographs. So for the first hundred years of the medium, blur was about the worst thing that could happen to your pictures. And then all of a sudden in the 1950s, these motion blurred pictures became a really popular way to indicate speed or emotion. And I was fascinated by how the rules were so quickly overturned. So we know that traditional histories of photography mostly feature famous, or as you say, they became famous because they were featured. And then the techniques utilized by professional photographers, not your ancestor and my ancestor. Yeah, I I like that way of putting it, that it's techniques used by photographers. And it's true. What I found was that sometimes those techniques kind of went from the bottom up. They were adopted by professional photographers to create a sense of authenticity. And sometimes they weren't intentional techniques at all, but they were accidents like, you know, cropping part of that person's head off accidentally with the viewfinder or, or blur or lens flare. But I think what's interesting, too, about some of these techniques is that sometimes they start and they're not appreciated by the the gatekeepers of photography for a while. But that really, when people make pictures, they intend to make good pictures. And that's what I think has been left out of most histories previously, is that no matter where you are in the hierarchy of photographers, when you pick up the camera, you want the picture to look good. And if it looks like other pictures, art doesn't consider that an artistic or creative photograph. It considers it a copy. But when it was being made by the photographer, they thought it was a good picture. Exactly. You're not intending to cut off someone's head. You're, you're <laughs> intending to frame your, pic- your family in the frame. Yep. Yeah, and it's not always the fault of the photographer. I mean, a lot of those early cameras, the early box cameras, didn't have viewfinders. So it was a matter of learning where your lens was pointing as much as it was paying attention, not being too wrapped up in the moment. I have a small collection of antique cameras. And when I look at those cameras and I see the snapshots that people took with them, I am amazed. I feel like it's a miracle that they could get a good picture because there is no viewfinder. Yeah, it's a good point. It's not, um, the viewfinder is one thing, but there are also all sorts of lens defects. 
the things and many of these things we consider markers of a good artistic picture today, and you can recreate them on your iPhone, like vignetting the darkened corners around the edges were a real mark of a low quality lens on one of those early cameras. They didn't have uh, built in light meters. And light meters weren't even used very much until the 1950s in the amateur market. So you had to make all those judgments yourself and bracket the picture, know how strong the sun is, and try to make a good picture based on what you'd learned in the past. And try, try again. Yes, absolutely. I love the fact that you start the book with the Kodak book, How to Take Good Pictures. Yeah, the title comes from that book. It's a long running guide published by Kodak and updated almost annually from 1912 until about 1995. The title changed in the early 80s from how to make good pictures to how to take good pictures. So make of that what you will. Yeah, I think it signifies that amateur photography is even easier than ever before. There's no longer any kind of hands-on practice (laughs) when we have point-and-shoots come along. But I have to thank my designer for the inclusion of that image as the frontispiece. So the book is definitely inspired by by the Kodak how-to manual, but it was my designer, Kevin Barrett-Kane, who decided to place it there as such a nice large image. And I really like your topical approach to popular photography. It's because you're looking at these how-to manuals for the most part, but it's not just, this is a daguerreotype, this is an amber type, this is a card photograph. You know, you're getting into, here's clouds and how people photographed clouds. What about square format? What about you, you approach it from the techniques that people were taught through these manuals. And that is brilliant. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it is. And that's, I think, another thing that makes it different. Uh, a lot of histories of photography are very technologically determinist. And so they focus, uh, like you say, on the different processes that were possible in their day. So just daguerreotypes and amber types. And that assumes that all daguerreotypes or amber types kind of looked alike. And that's absolutely not true. So maybe to the contemporary eye, and certainly to my eye before I started doing this research, sure, like all portraits made from about 1839 till like I'd say 1850 kind of looked the same. But when I started doing this research, I realized that wasn't true at all, that there were what would have seemed huge differences between different poses, different lighting styles. And so this book tries to reflect those differences in style much more than in process alone. Exactly. These photographs, you can lump them together, right? This is what a lot of books do. The Mm -hmm. images taken between, say, 1860 and 1875. The poses must, every picture must sort of look alike, except that they don't. (laughs) Right. Yeah, and it takes the kind of historian's or detective's eye like yours to see those differences, whether it's, as you've shown in previous episodes, whether it's identifying clothing. And, you know, I think fashion is actually a great analog for changes in photographic style, that just like uh, one type of hat goes in one year and is out the next year and is considered, you know, the most embarrassing thing you could be seen in. 
having your picture taken in one way, one year could be, you know, the mark of the most embarrassing kind of social outcast that you might ever see just the next year. Yeah. I mean, and then we get into amateur photography, right? Which is really the history of popular photography, which is the photographs that people started taking when they had the Kodak Brownie or one of the knockoffs of the Kodak Brownie or one of the Kodak amateur cameras. And they imagined themselves as professionals that I can do this. I have the power now. I have the camera. And as we we mentioned a, a few minutes ago, they had to keep practicing it. It wasn't it wasn't like we do today where you look through the viewfinder and you snap the picture and you can see exactly what's in front of you. This was a lot of trial and error and a lot of talent and skill and luck. I would say a lot of luck as to what you were able to capture. Yeah. And the major change in being able to look at the picture you have and make a better picture based on your last attempt, I think is time that it just would take a long time to go through all the pictures on your roll, send them back to Kodak if that's what you wanted to do, because Kodak is also the birth of the photo finishing industry. So Mm -hmm. you no longer needed to have a dark room. But to go through 100 pictures on a roll, I know that would take me or today, it wouldn't take me a long time at all. But back when I was, you know, carefully counting film frames, probably would have taken me a year. And then you get your pictures back and you realize that, you know, you cut off somebody's feet or everything is overexposed. But the learning process is protracted in a way that it is not today. Mm-hmm. And one of my, you know, unanswered questions when I look at photo collections or photo albums that people send me to look at is, okay, there's a hundred pictures on those early rolls, right? How yep. come you only have one or two pictures from that roll? And then when you think about it and you think about the cameras and you think about how it was all trial and error, that maybe they threw away, if you only have two, maybe they threw away the other 98 because they were terrible. Yeah, it's possible that they were thrown away or that they were used in different formats. You know, we see a lot of photos of parlors and bedrooms from the period that have pictures tacked up on the walls or stuck into the sides of mirrors. Mm. You know, just as as we did not all that long ago, pictures are used in different ways. And I think, you know, a really large percentage of pictures made in the 19th century have probably just disappeared. As in, not that they've been thrown away, but that they were not adequately fixed and that the image disappeared and became a piece of almost blank paper, which is another reason to throw it away. All of that is possible. Mm -hmm. All of it. We were going through a box of my husband's great, great grandmothers and came upon a photographic proof from the 1870s. And I had never seen something like that before because they fade away. But this had been in a box out of the light for, I don't know, she had sealed it up in 1875. Perfect. It was perfect. (laughs) Yeah, if you want to save your pictures for posterity, don't look at them now. (laughs) Exactly. So when you were doing the research for this book, is there anything surprising you ran across that you didn't expect at all? Oh my goodness. There are so many surprises in this research, probably one per chapter. And it's kind of, it's 
an Easter egg hunt for any reader because they're not always the main subject of the chapter. But there are things in there that I had never known and that I've heard, you know, from photo curators and other researchers that they hadn't known despite their, you know, exceptional knowledge in the field. So I think looking from the amateur angle and especially looking at these old how-to books once, you know, amateurism becomes popular, but also earlier than that, the kind of industry publications and just their cast off aside, I learned a lot about photography that I hadn't, you know, hadn't fully realized before. So one of the things that was most surprising to me was in researching the magnesium flash chapter prior to the invention of, well, certainly electric light, but earlier than that, powerful gas lamps and magnesium flash, there was a season for photographing. And that was the summer because there was not enough light indoors in studios and sometimes even outdoors to take pictures. The emulsions were not fast enough to record or they weren't sensitive enough to record a picture, especially not a portrait. So those seasons would have been the times that your great, great grandmother's picture would have been made into a proof uh, because photographers use the winter months to create copies when, you know, it doesn't matter how long another photograph sits still. So you can make lots of copies of it, uh, but you can't get a person to sit still and create a good portrait if it takes more than a minute or two. When people started taking pictures outdoors at night, this basically constituted a whole genre of photographs in like 1898 to 1910 period, that it was a huge technological achievement to be able to do this. And some of the photographers, or one in particular, described counting the length of the exposure based on the number of times he had to refill his pipe. <laughs> so you can get a sense of just how long he would be outdoors. And that those exposure times, as we know today, could be reduced if you have snow or rain on the ground because it reflects light. And your history begins in 1839, the beginning of the daguerreotype era, and goes all the way to 2019. And there are topics within each chapter. So, well, parts, I guess you call them part one, two, three, four, up to part six. So in each part, you cover a topic that was popular during that period. So say 1966 to 1995, things that we probably didn't even think about, which was, well, actually I knew about Polaroid manipulations, but a lot of people might not know about Mm -hmm. Polaroid manipulations. Or in part three, this is where you cover night photography. And then in the modern period, 1996 to 2019, which is just last year, you talk about selfies. Yes. And the growth of the selfie. Right. So I like the definition, and I think this is the correct definition, that a selfie is truly something that's made in the contemporary moment. It comes about with the age of the smartphone or pictures where you can see almost immediately what kind of picture it was that you took. So self-timer photos, things that were not meant to be shared on social media. I don't I don't count them as selfies. Ah. A purist. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I know it seems it seems opposite for the historian, but that's that's my definition of selfies. And they give rise to a whole host of stylistic trends 
which are mostly related to pose and location. And one of them that I find most interesting is that high angle pose. So from the very early years of the selfie and the early years, it's no accident that they coincide with the early years of social media and social networks like Facebook and before that, MySpace. The high angle pose was always considered the best picture uh, for selfies and for other portraits during that era because it's supposed to have a slimming effect. And, you know, you hold the camera slightly above your head, you look up into it. And I was fascinated to see that, you know, I always kind of took that as gospel and, and believed it myself. I was taught that way when I was working as a wedding photographer. But it's, it hasn't always been the case that high angle, high angle portraits were not always preferred over other angles, even including low angle portraits. So many assumptions. We make so many assumptions. That's right. Yeah. Anytime somebody tells you that's the best way to take a picture or that's, <laughs> you need to ask, are you sure? <laughs> One of my favorite little bits in your book is in chapter 30, which is where you talk about taking photographs of things that are on television mm-hmm. and how popular science ran a contest for the maker of the best TV photos. It's these little nuggets that really set your book apart. This was a surprising one to me too. It's an interesting phenomenon, but to anybody who collects amateur photographs, especially from mid-century United States, you'll see a lot of these. And the reason there was a contest and the reason there was any skill involved at all was because the cat, there's a scanning light in that's used in the old cathode ray tube televisions. And so the picture doesn't arrive immediately, but it's actually made up of lines that are being composed and recomposed. And so if you use a shutter speed that's faster than I think it's one thirtieth of a second, which is actually quite slow. Um, then you don't get the whole picture. So you get the picture kind of decomposed. And so there are all sorts of other tricks like that, that I think popular science was looking for when they're judging those TV photos. And so (laughs) the other part of that article that really made me laugh was that it's just the practice of making TV pictures is described as a kind of athletic pursuit that you have to have like a trigger finger that's as quick as a boxer's punch to be able to record the precise moment of some athletic feat or um, important event on television. (laughs) What a hoot. And I like in your introduction where you talk about digital photography and all of these effects that you can now create with your camera or your app on your phone that were initially thought of as, how did you put it? Let me see if I can find it. They're often mistakes, right? They're not just mistakes, but you know how you can like use an app now and make it look like a tintype photograph, for instance. Mm. You said it was the thing not to do, that it was considered nostalgia in not a mm. good way. <laughs> Yeah, I think there was a lot of backlash against filters around the 2010s. So with the introduction of Instagram and suddenly this rush of photographs when we could see other amateur photographs with much greater ease than really ever before, 
you know, short of going to your neighbors and watching a slideshow of their vacation. Um, you could see amateur photographs from all around the world of by made by other people, kind of just like you, of similar events. And one of the ways to distinguish those pictures was through the addition of filters. But filters, these digital filters that were part of the Instagram app or other apps like his Hipstamatic, those were just meant to disguise the relatively poor quality of the digital camera that was in early smartphones. So those pictures covered up pixels, they covered up poor dynamic or, you know, limited dynamic range. And the choice was to make those pictures look old. And I think that they, it was really a kind of uh, fear of this increasingly digital world where we don't have access to physical, tangible things anymore. And so adding a filter that makes your picture look like a tintype or even like an old kind of faded Polaroid gives a sense of materiality to these increasingly ephemeral digital objects. So it's Instagram's fault. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's not popular anymore. I'd say that the use of digital filters has really suffered a backlash and that people are not adjusting their photos with the intent of making them look destroyed or old, but instead with the intent of making them look to our eyes, which is more realistic. So a lot of color correction and making it look like a better version of the contemporary moment. Exactly. So it became, it was a way of fixing the photo, but now it's become an artistic technique. Yeah, it's complicated. You know, we might have to look back at it, you know, as historians in 10 years and say, well, what was it exactly that we were doing with those, all these bright white unfiltered photos in the 2020s? I see another chapter. Yes. I see a, I see a revised see edition. Book. Yes. <laughs> Kim, I just want to thank you so much for joining me for The Photo Detective. I absolutely love your book. It's my most favorite purchase of this 2020 year. And I just like to read it in little bits and focus on the content topically. It's a revelation each time I, I pick it up and find something else. So I want to thank you so much for putting it together. I often don't recommend sophisticated histories of photography to just the person with a lot of amateur photographs in their photo collection. But your book, your book is really for everyone. Anyone who likes pictures or anyone who has old snapshots, they should have good pictures. Thank you so much, Maureen. It's wonderful to have you as a reader and an enthusiastic reader at that. And it's been great to talk to you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media. Leave me a rating and a review. And if you know of a friend or family member who's also interested in family photographs, share this episode with them too. See you next time. I'm thrilled to be offering something new. Photo Investigations. These collaborative one-on-one -on -one sessions look at your family photos. You and I meet to discuss your mystery images and find out how each clue and hint might contribute to your family history 
And trust me, these images can reveal so much in your research. I have decades of experience in the photo, genealogy, and history industries. This is your chance to learn from me and discover the stories in your family images. You can find out more by going to MaureenTaylor.com and clicking on Family Photo Investigations.